Thanks for listening to this Waterstone message. Here at Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. This year during our Advent season, we are digging into what it looks like to be part of a different story. Together we are rediscovering what Christmas is really about through spending less, giving more, loving all, and worshiping fully. We hope this message challenges and encourages you, and we would love to see you at one of our services on Saturday evenings at 5.30 or Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30. We also want to invite you to be a part of our Christmas Eve service, Tuesday, December 24th at 1, 3, 5, or 7 p.m. Year of our Lord, 2019. When Jesus ascended on high, he promised, he promised he will come back. We believe that promise. So this year, during our Advent season, we're inviting all of us to be part of a different story, to spend less on ourselves this Christmas as we actively wait for Jesus to come back, to give more of ourselves this Advent in significant relationships and memories, to love all, to follow Jesus into the fellowship of the broken where he walked, and to worship fully. Waterstone, be part of a different story. Hurry up, Jesus is coming back. Today, our scripture reading comes from 1 Timothy, and we're going to talk about spending less between Black Friday and Cyber Monday, spend less. Please follow as we read and hear the Father's voice together. I'll read it, you absorb it. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything, And of Christ Jesus, who testified before Pontius Pilate, uh, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Choose your friends carefully. I have a friend named Kevin. We've been close for over 35 years. When he moved to Colorado, he'd heard about these things that we know as 14ers. And he said, would you like to do one? Sure. He picked the first one for us to do, Long's Peak. Can you say keyhole? 
People die on Long's Peak. And then Kevin says, hey, do you want to go camping? Sure. Rocky Mountain National Park in January. <laughs> Winter camping. Now you need to understand that my idea of camping growing up was McDonald's drive through in the back seat of the car. <laughs> so we're out there in a plastic bubble on four feet of snow. And I'm praying that if I can get to sleep, that all my body parts will wake up with me. <laughs> I can't say I enjoyed the experience. Winter camping is like hitting your thumb with a hammer. It only feels good when you stop. <laughs> There's no logical explanation for it, except this. You do get perspective. Stripped of all comfort, exposed to the elements and especially the massive solitude of God, you realize that the basic element of human existence is the struggle against our limitations. You know there's elements of winter camping in the everyday. When, for instance, we brush up against the reality that we cannot control another person's behavior, our children, our spouse, our boss. Or on the other hand, when we brush up against the limitations of circumstances, when winter bleak enters our lives in the form of disease, accidents, loss of job, life is struggle. Paul gives us a metaphor in our text that was just read. He says that the Christian life is a fight, and the Christian journey a fight club. Paul's writing this letter to a young church planner named Timothy. Timothy had been assigned to, to uh, come and reinvigorate a church in Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. And Paul's strategy pastorally was to go into this church because for the last 10 years they'd been infected with boredom and materialism. So go into this church and reinvigorate it by being what they should. And so Timothy goes in and models the fight. We read about it, the Christian life, in these verses but you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The Christian life is a fight. The Christian life requires four strong verbs. Flee, pursue, fight, take hold. Let's touch on each one to get a sense of the fight. Pursue. Now notice he says, or flee is the first one, from all this. All this is referring back to the previous text in which Paul is talking about money. And he's saying, run from the illusion that money brings contentment. More on that in a moment. Spending less. But for now, I want us to realize that a good part of the Christian fight is, listen, evasive maneuvers. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, talked about it this way. Are you having trouble with your thought life, purity of mind? Well, poke out your eyes and cut off your hands. Now, did he mean that literally? Of course not. 
What he does mean is that you need to build defense systems into your lives. You need to eliminate sources of temptation. You need a foxhole where you can go with others who can help you in the struggle. You need to learn to run. Running from sin is not weak. In fact, it's just the opposite. It is strength. And if you learn how to run, you can win. Several years ago, I read David Hackett Fisher's book, uh, Washington's Crossing, on Christmas night when he made the famous evasive maneuver to cross the Delaware. uh, Fisher makes the point in his book that the reason the American army won the War of Independence is because the army was masters of retreat. The British army was more highly trained more professional and well-supplied. But for eight years, they had to chase the American army around the East Coast, and they lost their will because Americans were good at fleeing. Christians should be good at fleeing. We don't flirt with sin. We don't try to fight it alone. We learn how to run from sin. And in that running is our strength. But while we're running, we pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. The first four of those are all about chasing God. And the Spirit's primary tool for chasing God, the Scriptures. The Scriptures are where we learn righteousness, faith, love, godliness. Waterstone. I want to remind you that now's the time to begin planning for how you're going to spend time in the Bible in 2020. The Bible is not just a book. It is the voice of the Father. And every day, in some way, you need to listen to the Father. It's the primary way we chase God. It's the Spirit's tool for helping us grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. So what's your plan? There's a hundred different ways to read Scripture. You can listen to it while you drive. You can uh, find apps like the, the Read Scripture app from the Bible Project or the YouVersion app. Just go, go on the App Store and there's a hundred different reading plans. How are you going to chase God by reading scripture and spending time listening to the Father's voice each week. Now's the time to think it through and make your plan for 2020. It's interesting, the last two, if the first four are about chasing God, the last two are about surviving life. Endurance and gentleness. Endurance is about being steady in difficult circumstances. Gentleness is about being steady with difficult people. Time after time, like when I sit in the membership class, as I have with many of you, I like to ask the question, when in your spiritual journey did you really grow? When did you feel closer to God? And answer after answer has to do with this, and there's no pleasure in saying this, but we tend to grow spiritually when we are suffering. When we realize it's a fight when we've no other place to go, no other voice to listen to than the Father's. We tend to grow through suffering. And I know some of you have walked into this room this morning in the fight, in the thick of it. And my encouragement to you would be, don't go it alone. Welcome other believers. You know, often God's help in time of troubles has flesh and blood 
and it's called a friend. Reach out, even after the service, we often have, I'm gonna be down here, we'll have people down here for prayer. If we can come alongside you in your suffering, hold you up, lean on him beside you, we want to do that. The Christian life requires strong verbs. Evasive maneuvers, flee, pursue God, chase him hard, even when we're suffering. And then, thirdly, fight the good fight of faith. Literally, it's the Greek word agonizo. Do you hear an English word in the word agonizo? Agony. Literally, Paul's saying the Christian life is agonizing the agony. Paul was a sports fan. He lived in Tarsus. He was surrounded by the Olympics and the Olympic culture. And if you read Paul's letters, Often, in almost every one, he makes an allusion to athletic events. And this word agonizo was often used. You can smell the sweat and hear the grunts. Paul is saying Christian life is like an athletic contest where if you want to win, if you want to keep going, you've got to work at it. Be disciplined and exercise. Agonize the good agony. Do you know that the early church had many ways in which they referred to themselves? One that we little talk about is the early church was called the Athlete Day, the athletes of God. Waterstone Community Church, you are the athletes of God. We flee, we pursue, we fight, and we take hold of eternal life, the profession we made. The scholars believe here what Paul's thinking back to is the moment that you received Christ or the moment that you were baptized. What Paul is saying is, Timothy, when it gets hard, when you're in the fight, I want you to go back to those first moments when you realize that Jesus was holy, that Jesus was beautiful, that Jesus was loved. Go back to that moment when you decided that you needed Jesus more than you needed anything else, when you were dunked in the water and came back up to a new life. Hold on tight to that moment when you gave your life to Jesus Christ. When you're in the fight and when you're discouraged, go there. See him again with those new, fresh eyes and take hold. You know what that grip is, that take hold? When I was in seventh grade in Roosevelt Junior High School in Altoona, Pennsylvania, we had to go through this thing they used to call the Presidential Fitness Awards. How many of you remember that? All the, all the boomers. They stopped doing that, I read, in 2010, and our country has been in a downhill slide ever <laughs> since. Okay, boomer, uh, enough. Um, do you remember, those of you that had to go through all that, one of the events was a rope climb. You had to climb a rope in a certain amount of time and get to the top and back down. Well, I remember this one gym class, one kid was up like lightning flash, boom, up at the top, he was holding on, and the gym teacher, the rest of us are watching, and he just starts hanging there. He's like 30 feet, gymnasium ceiling, hanging on the metal cuffling that holds the rope to the beam. The gym teacher says, okay, come on down, time's wasting. He would not come down. And in one of those moments that you never forget, he started sending us to get teachers and the principal and all these people came running and they threw mats on the floor. He's just hanging there. I don't know, I was a seventh grade boy, but I bet he hung there for five minutes. Finally, in one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, the gym teacher goes up the rope. I'm not sure he even used his legs. Boom, 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 boom. Pries his hand off the metal cuffling, brings him down. Take hold of eternal life. 
with a life grip. The first profession. When you're in the fight, hold tight to the beauty of Jesus Christ that you saw when you first believed. My friends, the Christian life is a fight. It requires strong verbs. Flee, pursue, fight, grab. Jesus put it this way. In Mark chapter eight, the Christian life. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. And then he said in Matthew 7, in the message, don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff. Even though crowds of people do, the way to life, to God, is vigorous and requires total attention. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great Lutheran pastor, captured Jesus' words this way. When Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids him come and die. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lusts. Every day we encounter new temptations and every day we must suffer anew for Jesus Christ's sake. The wounds and scars we receive in the fray are living tokens of this participation in the cross of our Lord. The Christian life is a fight. So we come to two questions that I have for you. First question, what are you expecting the Jesus life to be like? <laughs> what are you expecting? You know, by and large, this Christmas season, by and large, our life will be a product of our expectations. What are your expectations of following Jesus? He says it has something to do with the cross. Paul says it's all about a fight. What are your expectations? Some of you walked into this room this morning and your marriage is about to collapse. You know it. Your spouse knows it. You've been neglectful. You've let things go. You've not said things you should have said. You've not lived sacrificially. You've not served the other. And your life, your marriage is about to collapse. And I want to say to you, no, no. God wants to say to you in this moment, fight. Do not give up. The Christian life is a fight. Hold on. Some of you parents have kids, small, grown, who are off the rails. Don't give up. Do not quit on them. Get on your knees. It's a fight. Show up and keep showing up and do not quit. Some of you who are single, and in a dating relationship, 
You know you're either on the edge or you've been crossing boundaries. You know that God had made sex and sex is so powerful, so powerful that it needs to be sheltered in a marriage because the purpose of sex is to renew your marriage vows every time you do it. That's why sex is so big. It belongs in marriage and you've been crossing lines. I'm asking you to fight. No, God is asking you to fight for your purity. He wrote the owner's manual. Live it out. Fight. The Christian life is a fight. Notice, however, the first place where Paul takes the fight, both before the passage that I read earlier and after the passage that I read, Paul says the first stop in the gym for the repetitions is your finances. Paul says the first round of the fight is to fight your finances. Look at what the verses are immediately preceding the text this morning. Verses six through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, excuse me, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then here are the verses immediately after the text. Command those who are rich in this world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul says that in this fight, we're surrounded by money. <laughs> you think about our lives. What part of our lives is not touched somehow by money? Money holds a huge place in our lives, and it needs to be the first place we take the fight. Jesus talked about this. In fact, if you look at the Bible and read the whole thing, what you will discover is there's about 500 verses on prayer, 500. There's about 500 verses on faith. Guess how many verses there are about money in the Bible? 2,000. Jesus told 38 stories about how to live the Jesus life, 38. 17 of the 38 are about how we handle our money. Jesus is suggesting that we cannot be a fully devoted follower of him if we're not willing to take the fight to our finances. Our finances are a spiritual discipline as important as prayer and reading scripture. Why? Jesus captured it when he called money in Matthew 6, mammon. He said money is a god. 
It has power in our lives. Now, we know that our heart is wired to worship. Our heart hankers for treasure because we're made to treasure God. But first at the door, knock, knock, knock on our hearts is another God called money. And money says, God, excuse me, step aside. I want to come in and I want to give you significance and security and joy. Money is a power. And it's always knocking on the door of our heart to make promises. And we're so tempted to buy into those promises that money gives us significance, security, and joy. How does money do this? What's its power? Specifically, two things. And again, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 6. But he said, first, money has the power to blind us from greed. Now, when we think of a greedy person, who do we think of? Our rich uncle with the in-ground swimming pool. Someone who has more money than we do. We never think of ourselves as greedy. It's always someone with more. That's why, as you read about Jesus' teaching about the sins that we struggle with, the seven deadly sins, he never says, like when we're committing adultery, watch out, beware, you might be committing. No, we, we know if we're in bed with someone else, we're committing adultery. But when it comes to money, almost every time Jesus addresses money, he says, beware, be on guard, watch out. Why does he do that? Because we never think of ourselves as greedy. Money has power to blind us from our own heart. Watch out. You might be greedy. Do you know the other power that money has? It not only blinds us from our heart, it blinds us from reality. As believers, we know that our reality already involves eternity, that we are immortal beings who will live forever in the presence of God. But money wants to say, no, no, no. Now is all you need to worry about. If you want significance, if you want security, if you want joy, only worry about now. You know, even our modern best theologians get this. That guy, what was his, Woody Allen, he once said, um, if man is immortal, I have definitely overpaid for my carpet. Money blinds us from reality that if we're going to live forever with God, then perhaps, as the text said, we should be laying down a foundation in the coming age. Let, let's illustrate that together. Let's say that you're gonna go next spring on our compassion trip to Uganda, where we have a partner church in Soronko, and we support hundreds of compassion kids down there. Let's say you're gonna go on a trip. Compassion recommends that you take 200 American dollars to convert into shillings so that you'll have enough money to spend for that seven days you'll be in Uganda. But let's say you think, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, I wanna be sure that I have security, I wanna be sure that I can be significant down there, and I wanna be sure I have joy. So I'm gonna empty my entire savings account and take that with me. What would we think of you? You're crazy. Why? Because you're only gonna be spending seven days in Africa and 70 years in America. You should not take all your money. 200's enough. Follow the logic. You are going to be living 70 years in America 
and 70 billion plus years in heaven. Where should we be investing? Where do you live in the right reality? Money has power. Blinds us from our own hearts and our own greed and it blinds us from eternity. So, What's the incentive? What's the incentive if we're going to spend less to give more, if we're going to be generous with our money, if we're going to sacrifice with our finances? What's the motive? If I can be so blunt, what do we get from the deal? <laughs> well, our text tells us two things. In verses 13 to 16, in sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll stop right there. Oh, stay, stay on that one, Gina, sorry. There's two motives in this text, and they're both right here. The first motive is that we live in the sight of God. The reason we should be generous is because we understand that we can say don't look to every other person in, in the world and they can obey that, but we can say don't look to the one being in heaven and he would never obey that. We live every moment of our existence in the sight of God. I want that to, to sit on you for a little bit. You have never taken a breath out from and under the sight of God. What does that mean? A few years back, I heard a story, a businessman who traveled a lot, flying all around. He was on a flight, coast to coast, three-hour flight, and he began to notice the flight uh, attendants and the crew, that they were attentive. They were responsive almost the whole time when they could. They were on their feet. They were walking the aisles. They were engaging with passengers. They were serving Finally, he was so taken, and he'd flown hundreds of times. He pulled one of the flight crew aside and said, what is the deal with this crew? All the flight attendants so engaged with us. And the flight, uh, the flight attendant said, well, do you see up there? Don't thank me. Do, do you see up there, like three rows up, seat 12B? That's the head supervisor of all the flight attendants in our airline. <laughs> we like her. My friends, on this flight we call life, Jesus is sitting in seat 12B. We live in his sight now, and we anticipate the appearing of the Lord Jesus then. This is Advent. We're asking you to be part of a different story. We're asking you as you wait for the second coming of Jesus to be active by spending less, by giving more of yourselves in relationship, by loving all, following Jesus to the broken, and by worshiping fully. We are actively waiting the coming of Jesus. I want to remind us, as the text does, who's coming. Do you know if you go to the next slide? Here's who's coming which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord 
of lords. The one who's coming is above history and outside of time. The one who's coming has written the plan. He's empowering the script. He's directing and producing everything until the ultimate end, the last act, when he returns in full glory and every eye will see him and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is where history is going. No matter how crazy things look, Jesus is in charge. That's who's coming, the invincible one. And then he's the immortal one who alone is immortal. Immortal is the idea that God is self-sustaining. He is self-existence. It is impossible for God to go out of life just as is it impossible for us to stay alive. God does not have it in him to go out of life. He is life itself. We are dependent and disintegrating and fragile and finite, and God is strong and present and life itself, God. No one can take his measure because he's eternal. And then thirdly, he's the king of kings, he's immortal, and he lives an unapproachable life whom no one has seen or can see. Unapproachable light. He is the one, the creator, who is holy and holy other, and there's no one like him. He is the only one to whom we can properly apply the adjective great in all its fullness. He is great. In 1717, King Henry, or King Louis, excuse me, King Louis XIV died. King Louis XIV once said, the state, I am the state. He called himself the great, Louis the Great, and he demanded that his subjects call him the Sun King. His court was one of the most magnificent that Europe has ever, ever seen, and his funeral was stunning. He left specific instructions for it to be held at sunset so that the light would go dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, and the only light in the room was a candle sitting above a pure gold coffin that held his corpse. There was hushed silence in the dark. And then the bishop, the evangelical, the gospel preacher, Bishop Massillon, he walked up onto the platform, took his place behind the gold coffin. He reached down, snuffed out the candle, and began his sermon. Only God is great. Year of our Lord, 2019, first Sunday of Advent. Be part of a different story. The Christian life is a fight, and the first place we take that fight is to our finances. We intend to spend less in order 
to give God more because he and he alone, the coming one, is great. This morning, I don't know where all of you are in your journeys in life and in your faith in Jesus, but I want you to hear something. The reason that we can have a generous heart is because we've been treasured by someone else, held by someone else. His name is Jesus. He's the son of the Father, and he lived in an existence of ultimate significance and ultimate security and pure joy in his Father's heaven. But he left all of that behind, stripped it off, and came and became a baby at Christmas. And he became killable, and he laid down his life. Now that for which you're willing to lay down your life is your treasure. And Jesus said, even if I have to go to the cross and die in their place to forgive their sins and raise from the dead to give them eternal life, I will do it. Why? Because they are my treasure. And Isaiah says that after Jesus suffered and he saw his treasure, his soul was satisfied. And Peter says that because Jesus treasured us, we are now called a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation, his prized possession. We have been treasured by Jesus Christ. And thus, we can be among the most generous people who've ever lived. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we anticipate your coming. We're on the edge of our seats. We're standing on our tiptoes. We're ready for you. And as we wait, we wait actively. And one of the ways we wait, Lord, is to spend less in ourselves to be more generous and give more away. So Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit to come on each one of us and show us what that means. We all live in tension. We are the wealthy of this world. We have so much. Would you just continue to guide us, increase the tension, but give us wisdom as to how we can be generous. Lord, we also pray for anyone in this room who walked in knowing they're in a fight. They've been bloodied and bruised. We ask your Holy Spirit to intercede with them in prayer with groans that cannot be uttered by us, but you taking them to the Father that everyone who's carrying a burden of life and realizing the fight today would know they are not alone. And lastly, Lord, we want to give opportunity for anyone in this room who wants to be treasured by Jesus, who knows they need forgiveness of sins, who knows and wants a life after death, Lord, if there's anyone in this room who wants Jesus to come and take over their lives and follow him, we give them opportunity in this quiet moment to say, Jesus, Jesus, I'm yours. Lord, hear our prayers. Take us to the deep with you. Help us be part of a different story. In Jesus' name, amen.